Hello and welcome to the first episode of The Ear of the Other, a literary podcast. A podcast featuring interviews with authors of recently published books of literary criticism. Your hosts are me, Thomas Knowles, and my colleague, Peter Jackson. We're really pleased to have with us today Raquel Adini, a newly appointed lecturer at University of Roehampton, so congratulations for that. Um, Raquel did her PhD on garbage studies, um, and today she's going to be talking to us about consumerism, waste and reuse in 20th century fiction. Hello Raquel. Hello Tom, <laughs> and hello Peter. Hello, thank you for coming. Uh, to get a sense of overview, I thought it might be useful to read one of the endorsements on the back of the book, which sure. is uh, by Peter Boxhall, uh, Professor of English at the University of Brighton. Uh, and what he says is, through a series of acute and lucid readings of Breton's flea markets, Beckett's parched landscapes, Ballard's suburban concrete and DeLillo's hyper-reality, this inventive book shows how attention to waste's imaginative function can reframe our understanding of the relationship between capitalism, realism, and the material world. So there's a lot to grab hold of here. There are, he mentions Breton's flea markets, Beckett's parched landscapes, Ballard's suburban concrete, and DeLillo's hyperreality, each of which have something to do with uh, capitalism, realism, and the material world. So if we treat those as key concepts or phrases um, in your book, um, could we start maybe by talking about capitalism? So what's the, what's the thing about capitalism in this book? The thing about capitalism, okay. <laughs> uh, the thing about capitalism, I guess, uh, to begin with, is um, that capitalism asks us to look at things, um, at, at objects and the material world in a particular way. Um, and obviously that has shifted um, over the last century and, and arguably it's different now than it was in Breton's time um, or in the 19th century. But the, the key thing is that it asks us to value things in financial terms and to put things to use, right? So, um, so one, of the, one of the arguments I make is that there is on the one side a view of um, processes that must be efficient, that must do away with wasted time and wasted energies. But on the other hand, that we want our consumers, so our citizens, our, the people people who consume stuff, um, to do so in a wasteful way, um, aside from maybe in periods of, of war when suddenly we have a, an ethos of frugality. Usually the idea is use stuff, support the economy, buy, 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 right? Um, and again, this has shifted and changed, changed over the course of the last century, but that, that is kind of the enduring idea in, um, in many of the texts that I'm discussing, which challenge it. So there's this idea that in any case, whether waste be time or energy or or functionality, or on the other hand, um, dispose of goods, that it's a bad thing, that we should be doing away with it, but also that we rely on it. And so this is that that paradox at the heart of, of capitalist culture, which then the authors I look at are, are interested in teasing out and, and addressing in various ways. Yes, and you've got a really good uh, section on page six in your book where you talk about, uh, I'd like to just read out the quote here, you say, 
uh, waste reduction has remained at the heart of manufacturing, as perhaps exemplified by Japanese automobile manufacturer uh, Toyota's uh, reliance on Lean Six Sigma, (laughs) a methodology that seeks to eliminate waste or Muda or Muda, which it divides into into eight different categories, time, inventory, motion, waiting, overproduction, overprocessing, defects and skills, which has the nice acronym Tim Woods. And yet you continue, the hope of manufacturers like Toyota is that their customers will use their products inefficiently and dispose them dispose of them soon so that they might purchase newer a newer version of them capitalism is thus contingent upon extreme efficiency on the one side uh, on the side of production and extreme inefficiency on the side of consumption so this is the paradox that is produced by the capitalist uh, machinery i suppose so what is literature up to in this field um, well, I think the most interesting thing that literature does is is highlight how absurd that is. Um, I mean, I think that there's one of the... I find it very funny. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and the writers I look at um, make jokes about the fact that this is... Like, this is fundamentally a weird thing to do, you know, and we ourselves see it in, in, in our lives in that, you know, as, as faculty, we are asked to do things efficiently and mark our papers and, um, you know, uh, have an output and do all these things in a really systematic way. I mean, Tim Woods is a perfect example of how you create a system and like take it into its component parts in order to remove any time time spent that can't, isn't productive. But then we're expected to go and take our salaries and go and buy lots and lots and lots of stuff and do, you know, and replace our shoes many, many times when we don't need to and stuff. And, and both of those things are upheld as good things. And I, I don't know. I just, when I say that, it sounds already as a joke, like a joke. And um, one of the most interesting things in the, in the writers I look at is that they, they see that as the starting point, as, as the joke itself, but also the starting point for making new jokes. And so, um, you know, you have Beckett kind of taking his, um, his, his characters to the ex- extremes of, of inefficiency and doing just, you know, rolling around in mud or you know, repeating the same inane thing over and over and over again and saying that that's the principle of advertising, you know. Um, So if you say something enough, you'll believe it. And, you know, in some way, I'm going to make it be true. And by saying that, he kind of sheds light on what what an inane concept that is. And so I think that the most joyous aspect of, of these texts is the fact that they can find something funny to say about something that's actually quite um, harrowing uh, and that they can pinpoint in a way that arguably is as good as how economists do um, what is wrong about it. And the fact that some of these writers are saying it before, you know, before their time, in a sense, um, makes makes this spectacular, in my sense. Again, I'm not an economist, so, you know, I'm sure that um, Thomas Piketty or or whoever would have um, their own reservations about what they say. But I think that there's something very interesting that um, a writer can can approach these questions and somehow identify something that we ourselves take for granted. Do you think uh, literary endeavour as such and maybe the uh, study of literature 
itself is belongs to this category of wasteful (laughs) or inane productivity (laughs) yes inefficient wasteful and so on i mean this is so one on one hand you have um i don't think that it's i don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of these writers struggled financially um you have mina loy uh for instance uh you know, struggling to make ends meet and trying to um, be involved in capitalist in endeavors. So she, you know, she she set up. Um, she had a, a shop um, that was, or I can't remember, if it was a shop or a gallery that was funded by Peggy Guggenheim. So you know, this idea to try to make art productive in some way or put it to productive use. And a lot of um, Incel, the the novel that I look at, is about trying to create experimental art but also to get money for it you know so there's that on the one hand but then there's the fact that creative um expression often does involve um you know waste wasting time and just the time to to think um and one of i think i suppose one of the interesting things about writing this book at this particular time is how much those ideas about wasting time and having space to think are central to um to the humanities and and how and sort of discussions about how the humanities be run. Um, so, yeah, so I, uh, I I can't remember what your initial question was. Uh, nor can I. Uh, <laughs> but you mentioned uh, financial struggle among yes. the artists. And, of course, this uh, will chime with many people in academia yes, as exactly. well with the zero-hour contracts. Precisely. And so on and so forth, which are a broader phenomenon in society. Yeah. And this does seem to be a, a concern in your book that you do mention about unemployment as a what was it as a as a normal or almost necessary condition oh yes i mean the reason why we accept precarious contracts is that we know uh, particularly within the the most recent fleet of graduates um is is that we know that there are plenty of other people who want to take the position and will be willing to take that position um and so you know the zero hours contract or the one-year fellowship is something we grasp at because there's 50 other people probably more 200 other people who would be desperate for that same thing so um so yes this is the you know one of the specters that that haunts um the book also insofar as you know when i wrote it <laughs> I, was, I was on a series of adjunct contracts i was very lucky um in that i had yeah. you know i was able to to pay the bills and stuff but it did make it feel um more real and also you know I, the whole time i was writing the thesis i was thinking well this is this is useless at the moment it feels useless beyond academia you know i was working in advertising until i until i finished the phd my colleagues thought i was mad you know they're saying what are you doing what is this thing it's going to be read by five people you know and and academia is taken for granted in these in you know all these meetings of it's like oh she's an academic you know it's kind of like make allowances for her she's going to use big words you know she's going to have be out of touch and so there is this you know, the sense at, at the heart of what I was trying to do was think about value more generally. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and we could be all day talking about that. So in, in J.G. Ballard's novel Crash that you yeah. uh, write about so, so well in the book, the waste that might potentially be stewarded or um, that someone might be custodian of um, includes anal mucus, vaginal secretions, um, other bodily wastes that are daubed upon cars and uh, ejected as part of a kind of crash ritual. Could you say a little bit more about, about that? Because it's quite different to the sorts of wastes we've covered so far, possibly. Yeah, that? I mean, one of the things I find really funny about, um, uh, about Ballard and Ballard scholarship is that there's, 
there seems to be this real tendency to to attribute all of these meanings to um, to crash, which I mean, which is is perfectly valid. It's fine, but I just reading it cold um, before I read the the scholarship, and I was like, but. I mean, aren't these just crash cars? <laughs> you know, isn't this just a whole load of garbage? You know, and what do we lose by saying, oh, you know, it's a manifestation of subconscious desires or it's, um, you know, it's uh, it's the death drive or, you know, all of these all of these other meanings that um, I actually think take away from the spectacular shock value of the fact that this is just a book about people crashing cars and fucking in them and spreading their secretions all over them, which is weird, you know, and that there needs to be some kind of acknowledgement of the fact that that's strange. But that also, if you look at it from another perspective, it's not that different from, you know, the sexy commercials in which cars are, you know, the uh, akin to your mistress or, um, you know, the thing that's going to get you noticed or, um, you know, a sign of a midlife crisis. And so that really is just a much, much more extreme version of all the things, all the ideas we were bombarded with on a daily basis, and particularly at that point, you know, in time in the 1960s and 1970s, you know, where, you know, you are what you drive. And so it's just a very extreme, um, you know, consumerism on steroids, where, you know, the best way, if you want me to buy a new car next year to help support the economy, I'm going to go and just fuck it up. I'm going to go and crash it into a wall. And on top of that, since our culture really prizes performance so much, I'm going to film it and I'm going to make it into entertainment. Um, and then I'm going to make it really messy. So it seems to me that that's kind of what Ballard is playing with. And that's the, the funniest part of the novel is that all of those elements are already there in the culture. He's just throwing them together. And that's what causes scandal. Mm. Um, and is that a form of stewardship? No. I don't think that that is stewardship at all. Um, I think, you know, when I when I talk about stewardship, I'm talking more about um, salvaging waste and drawing attention um, to it uh, or, um, you know, stopping it from being overlooked entirely. I think that what Ballard's actually doing there is is different to that. He's taking, um, you know, he's, take, he's taking things that are already there and kind of I see it as kind of an excel so I talk about it in the book as accelerated obsolescence but it's really like an acceleration of all the process of cap of capitalism a kind of heightening of um the advertisement um and the, um you know the uh, documentary footage of of um of uh, you know president coming to town um and of the production and disposal of the car all of these things and it's just heightened and accelerated and um congealed so more than stewardship, um, maybe one way of thinking about it, um, which actually I don't say in the book, is um, the is like the the poubelle um, that um, Armand made in the 1960s. Um, so he takes all of this garbage from you know a, a trash can, some trash can, and puts it and kind of distills it. He puts it into these uh, cubes um, under kind of silicon. Um, that's the, the cover art of the book is, is one of these. Um, and it's kind of preserved. And it's also and it's kind of like a congealment or condensation of the culture of the time. And that and he he Armand was part of the um, nouveau realism movement, right? So he saw saw realism as being, um, you know, about about um, uh, portraying 
uh, consumer culture and portraying all the stuff that it leaves behind. And so rather than stewardship, I'd say that what Ballard's doing is um, congealing <laughs> all of this, all of this stuff and putting it and, um, into this kind of compressed um, uh, thing that makes us incredibly uncomfortable, you know, and that we look at and say, oh, you know, that's not reality, but actually, actually, arguably it is. Yes, he writes about wanting to rub the human face in its own vomit. Yes, yes, exactly. Kind of, yeah. Which is horrific, but I, I mean, and again, probably because I've been reading garbage stuff for so long, it makes sense. I, I find it, I, I, the thing that I find most funny is, is just seeing people's reactions to, um, to, to, to garbage or to waste. I, a friend of mine, um, his, uh, her, her, um, her son, two-year-old son, finds pigeon poo funny. And I want to understand why he finds it funny. He's two years old. He hasn't been t told that poo is wrong. He doesn't go to daycare. He hasn't had enough interaction with other people to know that there's something neatly bad about it. And pigeon poo is white, so it doesn't look like human feces, and yet he finds it funny, right? So I, wanted, I would really like to understand what that impulse is to be disgusted by or find funny something when, you know, which isn't just socialization. You know, in that context, it's, it's not. It's, it's something else. So in the conclusion to your book, um, you move on to explore the 21st century fiction of Thomas Pynchon, Jonathan Miles, um, and Tom McCarthy, amongst others. Uh, and you suggest that the depiction of waste in these fictions has changed dramatically um, from that of the previous chapters. Um, that waste has become so ubiquitous and vast, um, a kind of hyper-object, if you like, yeah. um, that no aesthetic distance from is possible. Um, could you um, elaborate a little bit on what just what has changed post-millennium um, in those fictions? Um, I suppose one one thing, and this is something that I, I actually didn't didn't include in the book, um, but that I've been thinking about since, is that um, that waste has been used so much in art, and uh, that has it has been. Um, that the aesthetic of reuse, by which I mean um, the the reuse of waste and transformation transformation to something pretty, has become also um, such a powerful marketing strategy that it becomes less powerful to do that um, or to use it in in literature or any kind of sort of countercultural sense. Um, you know, you, you I just I don't I don't think that it's it's as radical. Um, to write about people reusing waste or to focus on landfills when that same strategy is being adopted by, you know, Nike to build some kind of new fully made of recycled materials thing or when, I don't know, just the, the green ethos is so powerful and so, um, and so ubiquitous that um, within, um, within capitalist um, uh uh, marketing, um, sort of, and and branding, and um, and kind of the move towards sustainability or whatever that um, it almost has to be parodied, um, or it makes more sense to parody it now. Um, so I think that that's one part of it, and it's really only something that I've started thinking about since I went to a, a new materialisms conference um, that was uh, where there were various speakers who were talking, kind of drilling quite deeply into the rhetoric of sustainability. And when the speaker said, well, what does that mean? Who is it sustaining? You know, and talked about the ways in which um, these different companies use 
the idea of reuse um, to to sustain you know current um, current production um, consumption practices in the West you know mm. and that the reuse is generally being done <laughs> by um, by by people in 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 the global South so um, so that's part of it um, I suppose. Uh, the other is um, that it feels a bit, uh, a, f- a bit hopelessly naive to think that you can revo- revolutionize everyday life by wandering through a flea market and picking up broken bits and bobs, especially when you know that's something that Instagrammers and bloggers are doing. You know, um, it's it, again, it's it's been co-opted. Um, so that's that's one um, one one way. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I think that where it's most interesting is in the Pynchon and and McCarthy, where um, they seem to almost be responding to um, not just not just this realist uh, legacy, but the legacy of garbage writing specifically and uh, writing of garbage in New York. You know, they both. It seems like you know the contemporary novel needs to make a pilgrimage to Fresh Kills Landfill because that is you know ever since Delillo that is what one does, <laughs> and so it's quite funny um, and also sad to see you know McCarthy having his character go there and decide that it would just it would be just as meaningless to not go to fresh kills as it would be to go there and to see to which seems to be a message about it being just exhausted as a resource for for creativity you know it's been regenerated it's this you know beautiful marshland or whatever but that hasn't really solved the gar- garbage crisis. It's just kept Republicans um, on Staten Island happy, you know. And it's it's not really done anything meaningful. It's and I, you know, arguably the history, the complex history of the place has been buried under that regenerative thing. So yes, there may be wildlife, but it also kind of seals off the discussion um, about what that place meant, um, what it was to live near the garbage, and how it sustained, you know, um, a particular new world order. Um, so I think that that's one of the reasons um, why. But yes, the other reason is, you know, bloggers with their I produce one jar of garbage a year, follow me on Instagram. That's the other reason. I mean, who's going to touch the subject when, when then they're going to be compared to that? <laughs> It's just not cool anymore. It's, it's cool between, you know, for, with a particular subset, yes. um, you know, not, I guess, literary novelists. But, yeah, it might be proven wrong. Maybe maybe some wonderful novel be, will be written about it um, and that will either scathingly um, address that or, um, or see it as, in fact, you know, somehow redemptive. So, you know... Yeah. I can't predict the future, and, and hopefully it will remain um, an you know important subject. Probably, the the interesting areas will be in um, non-Western writing. I'm I'm assuming that um, non-Anglo-American, um, because there is lot still to be said about garbage that's not in the U.S. and you know where it gets shipped to um, in China and in India, and um, you know that this is something that my book doesn't address at all because it's you know focused on Western literature. But there's arguably um, you know a, a scathing critique to be made of of this very study and the way discard studies has gone so far, which is to say you're only interested in you know in garbage when it um, relates to white people, you know, in the big cities and in you know the canon in the Western canon and what about you know all these narratives um among you know people who who have no part in your culture you know and 
So um, had so I waste this, what you're describing is sort of a, a sort of a new colonialism. Yeah, yeah. And I would, mm. I, I would, um, I think that there are definitely blind spots in um, in what I do. I'm trying to, I'm trying to slowly to rectify that by writing a series of articles on female waste, which, um, or sort of the the <laughs> female waste sounds. <laughs> It's not just on menstrual um, discharge. It's I'm talking more about um, the gendering of waste and domestic waste, um, which, you know, there's maybe a couple paragraphs in the book on that, but there's a whole other dimension to it. And then, you know, while doing that, I found myself realizing, oh, but I'm only talking about white women, white mm. women who are, you know, upset about not being able to work. But so um, is this part of the answer to the question that Tom was asking about what we can't see about yes. waste? Uh, because yeah. it is sent over to the to the others, as it were. Yes. So mm. this is. Um, I think that yes, there's there's the the issue, and I mean actually, Ballard does does um, touch on this in his in his late um, work, which explores it in depth in in Supercan, the idea that um, our pristine spaces are that way because there is a whole you know coterie of non-white um generally poor people um keeping them that way um and that you know that that's uh, our our particular non-waste um spaces uh is is contingent upon that kind of exploitation um there's a point in your uh in the um earlier in the book where you you talk about the radical possibility of dwelling in waste yes um so that sort of leads on to this idea of well how would how would dwelling in waste yes work um, well exactly is, yeah. is that about saying well there's no such place as a way yeah we have to be we have to face up to our, our waste products and i mean for instance um timothy morton has suggested that we publicly display waste products such as depleted uranium yeah um make them into public monuments yeah uh, like own them if you like mm-hmm. um rather than burying them in concrete or uh, and Paul Kingsnorth has installed a compost toilet in his rural abode yeah. in Ireland um, and in d- adopted some pre-industrial methods of farming, including using that, his own yeah. human waste to fertilise. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Is, is that the kind of... Is that more of the co-opting of the sustainability, though, or is that... Is that I mean, no, I, I, that's, I think that that's one of the, the less um, negative end of the spectrum. I mean, to go back to the question about what does dwelling in waste mean, that's... That is arguably where where a postcolonial scholar or um, yeah. or a more a less forgiving Marxist critic would look at my chapter on Beckett and say, "Wait, so are you just saying that it's radical for homeless people to radical for homeless people to um, you know live in their own garbage?" And that's not that's not what I intend. But there is the risk of going that way, saying that the only way to resist capitalism is to um, you know be homeless and uh, and live off of the scraps. That's that's not what I mean. It's more a, a matter of allowing us to conceive of of the possibility that our bodies are sullied, <laughs> or not to not see it as sullied, but that they produce stuff, and um, and that that's okay, you know, um, which takes on a political dimension, particularly with regards to women's bodies um, and the fact that they are fundamentally seen as polluting and that it's not okay to talk about, you know, periods and uh, breast milk and all these other things. Um, but it's also a matter of, uh, of kind of shifting um, our sense of, of time wasting and acknowledging the fact, um, sort of the effects that we have. Um, you know, I think that it's actually quite salutary to um, look, you know, to go and visit a landfill and say, look, that's, I've, I'm part of that, I did that, 
you know, um, you know, maybe go back to, you know, we were as kids, mommy, I did a poo, you know, and say, look, I produce that and actually acknowledge it. And, you know, I think that where the rhetoric of sustainability um, becomes a bad thing is when it serves as uh, as a justification and saying it's okay. I suppose at the other extreme end of this, uh, just uh, recalled something Trump was saying about his wife that I have never heard her pass wind oh jesus yeah yeah, yeah. yeah exactly <laughs> something to that words to that effect <laughs> yes i mean or worse than that i remember my first so my first english boyfriend i'm gonna blame the english for this um said um told me uh once he, he, he said oh you did such a feminine fart and I was like, what's, what's that? I mean, we were 18 at the time. So, you know, it's, it's justified by that. But that's really stuck with me. I thought, you know, it's justified as long as it seems petite or whatever. You know, what would he have said it had it been otherwise? And I just, I think that that's hilarious, but it's also belies very, um, you know. Does it sound like a trombone or a flute? Yeah. Sort of? Yes, exactly. I'm going to develop know. a complex about my farts now. Are they suitably no, it's masculine. Fine. Or... It's fine because you're a man, so they can be however way you want them to be, right. you know. But it's but this is you know it does then raise questions about women's bodies in, in general and about the fact that they're not supposed to look um, or or do the things that actually bodies do in general and if they didn't we wouldn't be able to procreate. So this is a slightly open question um, in in the uh, introduction to your book. You, you give us a wide set of examples from Western and especially European literature, including a current uh, British writer, Ellis Sharp, who doesn't have a Wikipedia entry, so yeah. I haven't heard of him. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, the Italian writer Primo Levi, Czech novelist Ivan Klima, the French writers uh, Michel Tournier and Marguerite Duras. Uh, you also mentioned mid-century children's fiction writers Mary Norton, Clive King, uh, Elizabeth Beresford. And there's also references to canonical authors of world literature, Joyce, the Russian novelist Nikolai Gogol, and not least the realists Emile Zola and Charles Dickens. And all of these are in one way or another. All of them are writing about waste, um, and you also note the pervasiveness of waste in literature. You cite one critic who says that waste is so pervasive a theme, topic, metaphor and element in literature that an exhaustive study of it would amount to an account of the entire Western canon. So it's an enormously expansive topic, waste. And as I was reading it, I had a whole raft of associations. Uh, one of them was a film that Hitchcock never made uh, where he imagined uh, it was just about the process of the city where uh, fresh tomatoes and vegetables come in in the morning and then they get eaten, they get sorry eaten and excreted and they go through the sewage system and he sort of wanted to follow this whole yeah, process yeah. Um, the British artist uh, another association was the British artist Michael Landy oh, who threw course. everything yeah. away in the installation breakdown yeah. in 2001. I also had an association to the pop band or electronic band KLF who burnt a million in 1994. Oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. 1994 that yeah. happened. I've forgotten yeah. that it was that long ago. 
all those reality shows on TV hoarders. about hoarders, yeah, yeah. but also storage wars. Yes, yeah. <laughs> where people uh, auction off yes. uh, sort of, um, I, I don't know, mm. abandoned storage units and yes. fight over them. The other side of that is the literature on the life-changing power of decluttering your home, isn't it? You know. Yes, that's the more the, recent phenomenon, isn't, yes. it, isn't it? Oh, what's her name? Mary something it's marie marie kwando or something the one who's is it yeah. is it what is it called does it make you does it give you joy yeah that's it i yeah. got in a fight with someone on facebook or intense argument because um she took great offense at my saying that that was such a middle class um thing to, <laughs> to buy a book to teach you how to get rid of your stuff and yes. this yeah this person to deal with the clutter <laughs> yes exactly yeah. um for the things that you actually have money to buy that many people don't um yeah <laughs> other examples that i wanted to mention uh we've already mentioned well we, we talked about kipple in philip k dick's do android <gasps> yes dream of yes. sheep this is yeah. the the kind of um, objects or things that just seem to reproduce themselves inexplicably and take a lot of time to sort of clear up. Yeah. And um, and finally, um, uh, the, there's a vagrant in the first short story of Paul Oster's New yes. York trilogy yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. who tries to construct a new dictionary or language yeah. by giving names to broken objects, trash yeah. basically, that yeah. he finds on the streets of New York. Yeah. So I, my question, uh, in a sense, is, well, how do you sort through all this stuff? Um, or what is your own sense? Um, do the books you study contain any clues or answers about how we sort through our trash? Um, so, I mean, what's interesting is, is that you were as as you were listing all of these various things i was kind of mentally allocating them in particular categories which i think is quite funny in itself because we have a sense of tendency to systematize whereas when and taxonomize whereas a lot of the writers i'm looking at are, are arguing specifically that we not do that um but you know the evocations that you you are remarking upon hoarding has its own um, scholarship around it. There's a whole field of study. You know, Scott Herring has kind of uh, cornered, I was going to say the market around this, but I think that's, that's the wrong <laughs> word, but has established this whole field of inquiry around um, queer excess um, and, uh, and, and hoarding. Um, and I've actually, uh, uh, I've just come across um, uh, someone else who's, who's writing a book on hoarding in modernity and looking at it from various perspectives, including the flea market, um, since Breton was actually a hoarder. Um, and and <laughs> several several famous artists um, have been quite famously, uh, Andy Warhol as well, I think. Um, so there are, you know, there are these these areas where it's um it's kind of there's a scholarship around it mm. oster's work you know the short the short answer is that he's responding to the surrealists you know in the sense that he's very um influenced by um uh by um the the avant-garde and by um the writing um paris writing and so you know it's, it's no surprise that there's you know there are people um doing flannery every which way and and collecting rubbish there um but then there's the broader issue and that's the quote that you quoted is from Susan Signe Morrison's um, book I can't remember if it's the literature of waste or her previous one which is on waste in the middle ages but um, she's you know that that point that she makes is I think kind of one of the the essential things to remember that you know literature very often is looking at um, 
things that ordinary society doesn't look at, right? That we, you know, we tell our students that um, that the reason that they're reading these texts is that they can illuminate the world and um, and uh, and somehow give them insights or allow them to see it in ways that um, you know other aspects or other areas of society don't let them to. You know, that's mm. why you know you can talk about um, you know sex, frankly, or talk about you know uncomfortable issues. Um, and waste is an uncomfortable issue, you know, both in terms of, uh, you know, feces and vaginal discharge and semen and all of these things that our bodies produce in terms of the, the things that capitalism produces that we don't want to acknowledge. Um, and, uh, and also in terms, you know, in a very narrative way, you know, secrets, you know, we, when we don't, we don't want someone to find something, we throw it away, right? So there's this whole, there's, I mean, there would be a wonderful um, book to be written about um, about how waste functions narratively on on TV. So you know when you the the plot twists that involve someone losing something in the garbage or um, throwing it away because they don't you know they don't want to be discovered and then it kind of reappears, right? So um, you know those intimations of disgust on the one hand, secrecy on the other, and upholding the status quo make it such that you're you know you you are going to find it in literature. And then there's obviously you know, its associations with war and the 20th century is when, you know, you've got uh, cataclysmic um, uh, events that involve the, you know, decimation of landscapes and, um, you know, fragmentation in general. I, I did my MA at, at King's um, on uh, literature 1850 to the present, and I lost count of how many times we talked about fragmentation, you know, and it was this thing that is both material, the landscape, um, you know, falling apart, and the sense of, of the self. And so again, waste finds its way into that. Um, so the reason I think why there is this accrual of of um, topics and analogies and ideas surrounding it is is that it is um, integral to human experience um, and, you know, certainly and perhaps modern. Perhaps in an accelerated sense. And an today. accelerated sense now, yes. And it is really fascinating. I didn't know that the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental, Disordered, yes. mental Disorders um, had hoarding as a yeah. one of its disorders was it in 2013? Yeah, this yeah. Was, uh, so so the, the sort of public discourse on yeah. waste uh, would appear to be very kind of solution-based, coming back to the uh, yeah, it's a very CBT. self-help books. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I, this, it's not really a surprise because um, this is about, you know, that hoarding goes completely against the ethos of, you know, refitting your kitchen every year or... or um, replacing your shoes before you um, before you need to um, you know my, my um, the book is is dedicated to my grandmother my grandfather so um, uh, who they're, they're Italian and my, my parents are Italian and um, and I saw that kind of uh, what's the word tension between the hoarding um, uh, impetus on the other hand and the kind of uh, ethos of modernity, right, which is new seasons play out in in their home because my grandfather grew up in a very very impoverished household. His his mother would um, put rump, grumpled newspaper into his lunchbox so that he would be able to seem like he was eating the way the other kids did at lunchtime, and she would um, and he would draw on his on his bare feet so that it looked like he was wearing shoes, right? So extreme poverty, um, and then survived the Second World War and managed to, you know, make do very well for himself. Um, and he, he married my grandmother, who's instead from a very, you know, middle class, comfortable Southern family. Um, 
And what's what's interesting there is that you know he would bring home all of this crap. You know he would he was um, the quintessential flaneur, right? So he would go. You never knew where he was going the afternoon because he would just go walking. He's part of a generation of of men who um, or employees who were allowed to retire very early by the state, right? So I, he retired at the age of fifty, if that, um, and so spent the next thirty years of his life, um, you know, cooking and helping the house in the morning, and then walking around the city and collecting stuff that he thought would be useful. And this my grandmother found utterly humiliating. She owned, she set up a boutique um, in the in the mid 70s, the um, first off the rack um, designer boutique in her area in Tuscany. So um, she met incidentally Giorgio Armani when he was still um, a shop to shop seller, right? So before he became a okay. household name. and. So she was very much about appearances, you know, very you know middle class, and we want to look well. And she'd you know you know be selling these incredibly um, expensive furs, and it drove her absolutely bananas that my grandfather would bring trash home because this is not that kind of household. Um, to the point where when she heard about the dedication, um, she passed away last year. But when she heard about the dedication, she was like, "Oh my God, you know, are people going to know about this?" And I said, "Don't worry, nobody's going to read this book." But that that tension between, on the one hand, the mentality that we save everything, we don't need to buy new stuff. And no, my business relies on new seasons and on being the kind of person who throws things away and has new things is, you know, is at the heart of this. It's, you know, the modern and I guess, you know, the, the pre, pre-industrial. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's also how, how hoarding is, is stigmatized now. It's, you know, you must be a weirdo if you're keeping all of this shit. <laughs> You have been listening to The Ear of the Other. I've been Thomas Knowles and my colleague has been Peter Jackson. Thank you to Thomas Hall for producing the programme, to the School of Media for hosting us, and in particular to Raquel Denis for sharing with us her fascinating work. Thank you for having me.